Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Welcome to My Millennial Career. My name is Shelley Johnson. I'm a HR consultant and the founder at Bold Side, where we do HR and leadership coaching. Okay, so you are going to need to strap in for this episode. It was seriously one of my all-time favourite episodes because, I don't know, maybe it just resonated with me where I'm at at the moment in my life and career, but far out, Declan Edwards is joining the show to talk about happiness and the link between happiness and the work that we do in our career. If you can hear in my voice right now, I I think it was one of those episodes that was just like, oh, I really need this in my life right now. And I know that this is going to resonate with so many listeners. So what we talk about today is the idea of cultivating happiness. And there is such a link between your career and the work that you do and the happiness that you experience. But so often we look to the future and look to find happiness and we're always envisioning that future rather than being present where we are at right now and enjoying what we have. So today I'm joined by Declan Edwards and he is digging into this whole idea of happiness. Let me tell you a bit about Declan. So Declan is a happiness researcher and he's the founder of BU Happiness College, an award-winning social enterprise that is dedicated to growing global happiness. He's an avid believer in the potential of people. And Declan has seen that when individuals and workplaces have ways to measure, understand and manage their happiness, they make a positive impact not only in their own lives, but in the lives of those around them. It's this positive ripple effect that he is passionate about spreading. And boy, does he spread that on this podcast. I left with like notes and like actions and all these things. I did not stop talking about it with all my friends. I was like, oh my gosh, everyone needs to hear this. So what I want you to do is listen and re-listen and share because this podcast episode is just so important. Anyway, I'll stop raving on so we can get into it. Enjoy the show. Hey, Declan. Hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, so good to be meeting with you. And this is something we talked about a couple of weeks ago, actually, about this idea of happiness. And happiness is quite a controversial topic. Like, I don't think it should be, but I feel like it's this idea that people, you know, have some pretty strong opinions about. What's your take? Do you feel like happiness is controversial? Yeah, weirdly enough, it, it is. And I think it's because it's misunderstood, right? When people think of happiness, they tend to automatically think of the yellow smiley face emoji. And they think <laughs> of this real fleeting emotion that comes when you eat a cookie or a nice bowl of ice cream and it doesn't really stay. But that's not the case. You know, we know from amazing research in fields like positive psychology that happiness is complex. There's different types of happiness. There's contentment, right? Versus mm. excitement. These are all forms of happiness. And to learn how to cultivate that, I think, is a superpower. Oh, 100%. It is totally a superpower. And something for me personally, I would consider myself a bit of a skeptic or uh, have the erring towards pessimism. So understanding this idea of happiness 
feels really important, not just for our careers, but obviously more for our lives, but certainly like our jobs are a huge part of our lives. Like we spend so much time at work. I'm keen to know about this dynamic of happiness at work. But before we do, I just want us to, I really want you to define it for me because I kind of think of the pursuit of happiness, like that movie with Will Smith. And I think of all these things of people saying, don't pursue happiness, like don't pursue that fleeting feeling you mentioned. But what actually even is happiness? Oh, it's the big question. Look, we've been debating it for thousands of years. This is stuff that the Greek scholars and philosophers used to argue, what does it mean to be happy? And it's kind of what I've dedicated my life to. I'm a happiness researcher. And that's the big question is, well, what is happiness? For me personally, how I define happiness, and by the way, I'm going to put my hand up straight away and say, although I've spent my life researching this, I'm not a happiness guru. I don't have the one size fits all answer to a happy life. I think it's up to every individual to define what their blueprint for a happy life looks like. But for me personally, what's worked well is understanding first and foremost, two fundamental different groupings of happiness. So hedonic happiness, which is uh, more your quick fleeting, very exciting, you know, comes and goes really fast, excitement-driven happiness, you know, very elation-driven, mm-hmm. which is nice to have, but doesn't hang around. Right. And then eudaimonic happiness, which is more fulfillment and contentment. It's more that steady state, like I just feel good in myself and good in life. For me personally, I try to put about 75% of my focus and work and effort into cultivating eudaimonic happiness, that contentment, meaning, fulfillment. And then I top up with the excitement stuff. I top up with the hedonic. And that's what's worked well for me. So in terms of defining happiness, yes, I look at those two. And for me, I believe, personal definition here, that happiness is when I feel deeply happy and fulfilled and content in who I am in this current chapter of my life and I have things that I'm growing towards. Because mm. I'm just deeply happy and fulfilled in where I currently am, but there's nothing to grow towards. Life gets a little bit boring. But if I'm only looking at the future of going, well, that's what I'm growing towards and that's when I'll be happy, I fall Oof. into something called the hedonic treadmill, aka I'll be happy when. Oh my goodness. I feel like I'm on the hedonic treadmill just hearing you say that and going, oh, you're on the treadmill. I will be happy when I reach this salary or I'll be happy when I get that job title or when I get the next promotion as opposed to where am I, like how am I showing up? How am I content in my current state of being? Can I ask, because I think I've always thought of happiness as the hedonic version that you just shared and I guess it kind of associated with a feeling. Is happiness a state of being or is it a feeling? Help me understand that because I'm, I'm just processing, I guess, my own journey of, oh, I think I've thought of happiness in the wrong way. Mm, it's both. So we define happiness in terms of three different expressions of it. You can have your psychological expression of happiness, which is more how we're thinking, our relationship with our mind. We can have our emotional state of happiness, which is more the feeling of happiness. Uh, And then we can have our physiological expression of happiness. So we can see when someone's happy and well in terms of different neurochemicals, we can see it come through in their body. Like there's a direct link between happiness and physical well-being. So if we look at all three, right, our emotional state, our mental state and our physical state, then yes, you could argue happiness is more of a state of being as a whole and complete human rather than just a feeling in and of itself. That's really helpful too to think about those three areas or three domains of how we experience happiness. How much, in your opinion, and you've done a lot of research with so many organisations, you're doing all this crazy stuff at the moment that 
I just love hearing about your your journey in this space. How much does work contribute to our overall, what would you call it? Is it like general sense of happiness? How would you describe it? Mm. In terms of how much of an impact work has on our happiness, you know, you said it yourself, we spend so much of our life and time involved in work. And I think people are becoming increasingly aware of and considerate towards what impact does my work have on my life? Right? The idea of work-life balance is dying. People are talking more and more about work-life integration and how they play together. And people are starting to go, well, work's not just there to pay my bills. I want to get more out of it than that. And that's really exciting because when you look at the chunk of time, for some people, they spend more time with their work colleagues than they do with their wives or husbands. Mm. And so, of course, this is going to have dramatic, uh, dramatic impact. In saying that, I will be mindful to not accidentally encourage people onto that hedonic treadmill we spoke about earlier of I'll be happy when. Because I think often people make the mistake of I'll be happy when I change jobs. Mm. I'll be happy when I get the next one. And of course they get there and they go, oh, this isn't any better. There's a a great quote, I forget who it's by, but it's something along the lines of no matter where I went, there I was. Mm. And so what I would highlight here is yes, work has an impact on your happiness. It's important. But what is more important is your internal skill sets that cultivate happiness. Mm. Your emotional intelligence, your communication, your resilience and grit, how well you understand your mind, your habits and behaviours that you take each day. That's going to have a more dramatic impact uh, than just where you work. Yeah. So if you can nail that first and then top it up by having a role that you love that's meaningful and purposeful, by having great relationships with your teammates and colleagues, that's gorgeous. Like that's the end goal. Yeah, totally. I I think that's such a good example when you jump from one job to the next and expect all the problems to go away and you're like, wait, no, they're still here. Maybe I'm the problem. <laughs> I'm the problem. <laughs> and I guess for me, hearing you say that and, and also having experienced that, I've done that journey of jumping from a job to another job thinking this will solve the underlying thing and then I'm still feeling unhappy, unmotivated, disengaged and then I'm realising, oh, what is it in me that I need to change rather than externalizing the issues to other parties or other people. What are those, you mentioned those things that we can do, I guess, to increase our own happiness and and take kind of control of that. What are the things that you can do practically? First and foremost, learn about emotions. Learn about happiness. Like you don't need to reinvent the wheel. This is the crazy thing for me. Like I run a happiness college, right? And people go, what's a happiness college? I'm like, well, it's a space where people can come and learn all those internal skills to live a happy and fulfilling life, to feel more in control of their mind and emotions rather than at mercy of them. And a lot of this stuff isn't mind-blowingly new. It's been around for a while, but we just didn't learn it at school or unless you're one of the lucky few who had very emotionally intelligent parents, you probably didn't learn it at home probably haven't learned in the workplace. I like to describe it like uh, emotional intelligence is much like a language. And when you learn how to speak it, you're like, oh, hang on, now I can actually do something with it. So when people go, what can I do to improve my happiness? The first thing I say is go learn the language of happiness. Go look into fields like positive psychology, listen to great podcasts, reach out to great researchers who have spent their life understanding what it means to live a happy life. And then, so we kind of go from there, you get your knowledge. Well, then we need to put it into practice. And we need to start building consistent uh, habits and daily routines and behaviors that cultivate and support our happiness. So often, it's, you know, people wonder why they're not happy. And you go, well, look at your week and look at how you're spending your time and what you're doing. How much of this is actually topping your cup back up versus you pouring into other people's? 
how much is actually sustainable and healthy, how much actually cultivates that contentment and fulfillment versus that quick rush of I got a dopamine hit because I jumped on social media, mm. right? And, and so first and foremost, learn about happiness, then put some basic behaviors into practice, probably skipped ahead a step. The one before all of that is what we mentioned before and alluded to before, define what happiness means to you. Those things you said, like the things we can do to cultivate happiness, like looking across our week, and that's such a good way to put it, of going, how do we look across our week and think through, I suppose, that view of what things are refilling my cup as opposed to kind of pouring out to other people. Are there practices that you, and I know you, you have a fair few practices that you actually personally do, like before we were talking about, let's do a walking meeting, like and, and things like that. What are the practices that you feel like are, contribute and fill up people's cups and refuel that sense of happiness. Hmm. My favorite, you know, I'm going to go with my favorite two, top two. And the reason they're my top two is because as much as I said before, there's no such thing as a one size fits all answer to happiness. I'm going to go back on myself and say, these two need to be in everyone's. If I could snap my fingers and everyone did two practices, it would be these two. So the first one is a regular gratitude practice. And it sounds so simple. And I know there's going to be listeners who listen to this and roll their eyes and go, well, that sounds a bit fluffy. I was the same. I was like, there's no way that works. Then I tried it. I went, wow, that's interesting. It works. So what a gratitude practice is, the, the recommendation from positive psychology is once a day, doesn't matter if it's in the morning, in the evening, whatever. Once a day, you sit down and you ask yourself, what are three things that went well today? Or what are three things I'm grateful for today? And why am I grateful for them? Now, the why is the kicker because the why is what allows us to, sometimes I call it marinate in the good gratitude juices or simmer in it. Uh, it allows us to actually experience the feeling of gratitude. And we know that gratitude is so protective against stress and overwhelm and burnout. It is a really powerful thing to tap into. I know for a lot of people, myself included, looking at a blank piece of paper and saying, what are three things I'm grateful for can be really daunting and really overwhelming. So I broke it down further and went, let's use some categories and prompts. So for me, I go, what is uh, one small moment I'm grateful for today that I may have otherwise overlooked? Wow. And I get that little one first. So we're trying to find the things that we'd normally take for granted. The second one is, who is someone I'm grateful for today and why? And it can be someone who I have a really close and meaningful relationship with, like my wife. It can be someone I just passed and had a fleeting interaction with, but it was really nice. Helps us feel connected to people other than ourselves. Mm. And then the third one, which is the hardest, but the most beneficial, is what is something about myself I'm grateful for today and why? Mm. So often in life, our brain looks for what's going wrong, what we can do better, what needs to be fixed, what needs to be improved. And it makes sense, right? People are sometimes taken aback when I say your brain actually doesn't care if you're happy. That's not its priority. Its priority is to keep you alive. And what's more advantageous to keeping you alive, looking for all the good things in life or looking for the threats? Looking for the threats. So we've got this brain that's become really good. It's called a negative cognitive bias. It's really good at looking for what's wrong in our work, in ourselves, in our relationships. And it kind of doesn't practice looking for what's right. So by doing this gratitude practice, we're training that part of the brain. Yeah, the bias towards negativity is such a huge thing. For so many of our listeners right now, I know that they're going to be resonating with this because, you know, it's kind of like that idea when your manager comes to you and they say, hey, Declan, I've just got some feedback. Can we talk? And your initial thoughts like, I'm going to be fired. 
I'm going to lose my job today. <laughs> like you just, the, the worst case scenario is the first trigger because you're right, like we go into that, you know, fight or flight mode and our, you know, adrenaline's firing and all the things are happening. And I think it's such a difficult thing to really practice gratitude, but also for ourselves, like that last question of really thinking about what is the great thing that we brought to the day? What is the thing that we've done really well? There's something in us, I think, that go that balks at that. Especially in Australian culture. Mm. Right? We have a real, we've got a lot of great things in Australian culture, but what is really holding us back in a lot of ways with our happiness as a country is uh, tall poppy syndrome. So we don't celebrate other people's success. And also this, uh, I call it almost Aussie battler syndrome, where it's almost celebrated to be doing it tough. Right? How are you doing? Oh, stressed, busy, I've got so much on the plate. I'm like, yeah, but are you happy? And we almost reward and celebrate, you know, and don't get me wrong, grit and resilience is important, but the purpose of life is not to be gritty and resilient every single day because you're going through a tough time, mm. right? We need to also cultivate the good times. So that's where gratitude comes in. And then, so I don't leave them hanging. The second thing I'd recommend with your gratitude practice is what we call it at the college that I run, self-care, small sips. People overcomplicate self-care. They think it needs to be a full day event, a full hour. It doesn't have to be. You can find things five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes that genuinely feel like they're topping up your cup, mm. either topping you up physically, mentally, or emotionally. Those three we spoke about before that build happiness. So for physical, you know, it could be something as simple as stretching for 15 minutes. Yeah. Right. For uh, emotional downregulation and relaxation time, it might be a quick meditation. It might be listening to some nice music that helps you feel present. And for mental, that sort of stimulation, that learning, it might be a 15-minute podcast. It might be something like this. Like you could be practicing self-care right now. And I think if people can look through their week and go, did I take at least one small sip for myself each day? Yeah, wow. That's the goal. It's a really <laughs> – I'm glad you said that because my thing when I think about self-care – actually, do you know what? Let's go super real. I've always – uh, resisted the thing of self-care. Hmm. And I think in, I don't know what this is, this is deep, right? But we're, let's go into let's all go the, let's the psychology of it. But I felt like self-care as a term feels selfish. Hmm. And I think when you're, I know a lot of parents will relate to this, right? Like two little kids running around and the concept of taking time out. So for example, sometimes I feel when I go for a walk, this... I'm taking an hour out of the day where I could be doing the stuff to help our family, oh, you know, whatever that is. And so I feel this thing of like, oh, self-care feels really selfish and do I have a right to that? What's your take? Because I'm sure you've heard people say this before. So often, so often, yeah. What you're describing is self-care guilt and it is such a common phenomenon, right? And it is tied back to this idea of we were all raised being told, don't be selfish. And we don't want to perceive ourselves as a selfish person. So if the idea of taking time for ourselves is linked to being selfish, then inherently we have resistance to it. We feel guilty. My challenge to that and what we found works really well for helping people reframe it is there's different types of selfishness, much like there's different types of happiness. So you have traditional selfishness, which is I will put my needs first at the expense and detriment of others. We don't need more of that in the world. No. Right? That's the selfish we're told not to be. On the other hand, though, we have a concept called healthy selfishness, 
which is I will put my needs as a high priority, not necessarily first. I always say top three is the goal because if you have young kids, they can't look after themselves yet. You know what I mean? They need to be up there too. But I'm going to prioritize my needs in the top three for the benefit of others. Oh. Right? So again, I'll say the traditional selfishness is I'll prioritize my needs to the detriment of others. Healthy selfishness is I'll prioritize my needs for the benefit of others. And what I mean by that is we all know I can put my hand up straight away and say I'm a better husband, a better leader, a better friend, a better family member, a better version of me when I'm happy and fulfilled and looking after myself compared to when I'm stressed, burnt out and overwhelmed. Mm. So if I'm not taking that time for me, it actually means I'm doing the worst thing for my loved ones because I'm not going to be giving them the best version of myself. Whoa. Just, I just pause. Let's just pause. <laughs> I, mm. Okay, I'm thinking all this through and going, oh, that's like such a good truth that I need to hear. And I know our listeners are going to be like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm doing that thing. I'm pouring out, mm. but not, not refilling. I love that definition of selfishness to the benefit of others. And I kind of think about that of self, if I think about the self-care concept, self-care as a service, as a service to me, as a service to the people that I love and care about. And now I'm like extrapolating this concept out and thinking about our teams that we work in. And you could almost look around your team, right, and go the healthiest, most content, happy person on this team does this. Like they look after themselves. But then like you can look around your own team and see the selfish person that puts their needs at the expense of everyone else's. I almost feel like there's a good diagnostic tool in there for us to just do a little scan around, scan yourself first. But also look at your team and think about how do we show up? Do we actually practice that self-care at work or is it seen like and I think this is the the big problem with hustle culture I freaking hate hustle culture you and me both (laughs) because it drives this thing of like go at all costs like freaking like climb the dumb career ladder which I hate um and then yes I'm just (laughs) I'm having a moment as I tend to do on these episodes is this something, this idea of self-care as a service to yourself and others, a way of reframing the conversation that we have in our like, internal monologue around self-care? 100% because it makes it about something bigger than ourself. So now when you're taking those 15-minute self-care breaks, maybe you're going for the walk, it's not just about you taking time for you. It's you going, well, hang on, I'm going to get back from this walk and I'm probably going to be a better parent from it. I'm going to feel more grounded and calm. I'm going to be less emotionally reactive less snappy, right? <laughs> so everyone wins from that. Yeah. And it's a, a bit of a controversial take, but I think we need to really embody this more. Traditional selfishness, so that I'll put myself first at the detriment of others, and selflessness are equally detrimental. Ooh. So if you don't want to be traditionally selfish, I would also encourage you that you don't want to be selfless because if you lose connection to yourself, if you lose sight of your values, your purpose, your definition of happiness and how you look after yourself, how in the world are you going to serve anyone effectively? Declan, oh my gosh, that's so, so good. That is so good. And it's really challenging because we've grown up for many of us, many of our listeners who are around, you know, that 27 year old on average mark right now, we've grown up with this kind of sentiment of selfless, be selfless, be selfless, be selfless. And then all of a sudden, our age group 
are experiencing huge rates of burnout. Like it's just wild to see so many people in this kind of age range burning out. And I think, well, what's that about? And I'd love to know what your thoughts are on this idea of burnout and, and I suppose hustle culture and how all that's contributed to it. Mm, mm. Yeah. And well, quickly before we touch on burnout, to highlight what you were saying with that selflessness being tied to burnout, all you need to do is look at some of the highest burnout industries in Australia, education, allied health, particularly nursing, social work. What's the common theme? They're all industries that have celebrated being selfless and being a martyr for years. Mm. And it's costing them their great, it's costing them their teams. It's costing them the well-being of their staff and of the professionals, ironically, in the industries that society needs most. Oh, absolutely. If you want to make a happy society, start by having happy educators. Start by having happy uh, health professionals. Start by having happy people in social work. We are cutting our own happiness as a nation because we have celebrated uh, selflessness and martyrdom in these industries for far too long. And it's led to exactly as you said, burnout, rampant rates. Yeah, burnout, compassion fatigue, those levels of exhaustion. Also that disconnectedness from your emotions as well. Like I often, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a teacher uh, who was talking about that when you become detached from the work as a self-protective mechanism. Yeah, I once spoke to someone who said, oh, I was burning out. And I said, well, describe that experience to me. And they said, oh, I was, you know, really emotionally volatile. I was exhausted. I was fatigued. Uh, but I got through it. And I went, okay, well, what do you mean you got through it? And they said, well, I don't feel anything anymore. And I was like, wow. that doesn't mean you got through burnout or recovery. That means you've got it worse into burnout, right? I'm like, you're further on the burnout spectrum. We need to come back. We need some major recovery. Well, and sometimes that's the danger is, as you said, as a survival mechanism, people detach and disconnect from their emotions. They detach and disconnect from their work and they detach and disconnect from the people around them, right? The three connections, connection to self, to others and to purpose. They pull away from all three and then they go, I feel in some ways better because I feel neutral. Oh, I feel nothing. Yeah. And so it lures you into this false sense of I made it through. It's like, no, you're actually further along the burnout spectrum. And this is another thing. We talk a lot about it at, at, at BU, um, both on our workplace happiness consulting side and the individual happiness coaching side. Burnout is not a light switch. It's not on or off. You're not burnt out or not. It's actually a 12-stage spectrum. Mm. And a lot of people don't know that, so they don't catch it till they're at stages eight, nine, 10, you know, like withdrawal and depersonalization that we're talking about, that feeling numb, that is a late stage burnout warning sign. If we could teach people to A, know that there's 12 stages of burnout and then B, catch it at stage three or four. So something we do within our team, for example, we have the 12 stages on a one A4 page. All staff members have it. And each week as part of our weekly check-in, we ask all of our team to say, this is the level of burnout I'm currently experiencing and this is what support looks like to me at the moment to move down the burnout spectrum. Wow. It has been a game changer for us because we're in a, in a servitude space as well, you know what I mean? Like we're, it's very easy for us to pour into everyone else's cups and to forget to practice what we preach. Yeah. So by having that monitoring and those conversations to go, well, hang on, my burnout's gone from like a three out of 12 to a six out of 12 in a month. I got to do something about that. It's just helped us be more proactive to it rather than reactive to it. Oh my gosh. This is a conversation. I, I really find in these episodes that we do, there is always something so valuable for our listeners, but I'm always in here being like, oh my gosh, this is just for me. I need to hear this. So this is me having my moment. Uh, <laughs> 
We're going to take a quick break and I want to come back and I know you had some, you've got some other practices for building that happiness and we also want to talk about assessing the happiness that you experience in your workplace. So the, I guess that level of happiness in the work culture that you're part of. We'll take a quick break and we'll come back in a sec. We love learning how to do all things well, which is why we have a bunch of different podcasts on a variety of topics. So go and check out My Millennial Investor, My Millennial Money Professional, My Millennial Property, My Millennial Money, and our Spotify exclusive show, My Millennial Daily. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. All right. Can I ask you, again, personal question? Do you meditate? Is that a part of your, <laughs> is that a part of your, uh, process. I have a love-hate relationship with meditation. Uh, yeah, for years I was reading all these academic you know, articles and research saying meditation is so good for you. It's going to be brilliant for your mind. And I'm someone with quite a busy mind. Okay. As I sat down and, and all I could think about the whole time, you know, I was cross-legged, eyes closed, <laughs> kind of chanting. And all I could think was like, this sucks. <laughs> this is not fun at all. I'm so bad at this. Don't think. Now I'm thinking about not thinking. Oh God. So like, I'm, <laughs> now I'm, I suck. I'm failing at meditation. <laughs> this is not going in my gratitude journal. <laughs> exactly. I'm not going to practice gratitude towards this. Um, fundamentally, my approach to meditation changed a couple of years ago. Uh, I did a course with John Kabat-Zinn, who's known as the founder of modern mindfulness and kind of westernized mindfulness. He was like, meditation is not sitting cross-legged under a waterfall, you know, eyes closed, like seated silent meditation is one of the most advanced forms of meditation. And most people start with that and then wonder why it's not working. Yeah, wow. It would be like signing, you know, basically saying you're going to go to the gym and you have no warm up. You just go straight and go, I'm going to lift the heaviest thing in here. Like you're probably going to hurt yourself. Yeah. It's the same with meditation and training our brain. So I went, okay, well, let's reverse engineer. What is the most basic form of meditation practice? And it was one called 54321 great grounding technique, great thing for helping us be present. I found it really good for calming my mind when I was feeling anxious or stressed or like my mind was racing too quickly. All it was as a practice is you look around and you name yourself five things that you can see. And then you check in with yourself and go, well, what are four things I can feel right now? Either emotionally or physically, like put your hand on. And then what are three things I can hear? What are two things I can smell, if anything, and and what's something I can taste, if anything? And all you've done by doing that process, it takes like a minute, maybe two minutes, is you've trained yourself to check in with your senses and come back to the present moment. And so that was my starting point for like, I'm just going to try to do that whenever I feel stressed and overwhelmed. 
And I was like, this isn't too hard. Look at me. I'm nailing meditation. I'm so good at mindfulness now. <laughs> and then from there, I progressively worked my way up to now I'm at the point where I'm doing 20 minutes seated silent meditation most days of the week. Wow. And I'm feeling the results from it because I built up to it. So short answer to your question, yes, I do meditation now, but would I recommend every listener suddenly goes, right, I'm going to go do seated silent meditation? Definitely not. Start on your lighter forms of mind. A mindful walk is a great one. You know, there's a great practice, mindful tea, where you actually make yourself a tea or a coffee and you actually experience it when you drink it instead of shoving it down between meetings or on your way to work. These are all forms of mindfulness. That's a really interesting point, even of just the, the simplicity of making yourself a tea and taking the time to drink it. Because I think about our daily life and everything feels like it's on the go. Like I'm thinking about my coffee routine. Like I go out and get a coffee every morning for my cafe and I'm always feeling that sense of rush, even though I'm just going back home to work in my home office. Like I'm not bloody going anywhere, but why do I feel this sense of urgency? I think that really takes us out of that contentment zone of being present, of, of being able to kind of experience life rather than thinking about the future state all the time. Yeah, I'll share something that's, um, I think, quite poetic. It's advice one of my earliest coaches and mentors gave me. Uh, he said, Declan, you're so busy either being a human doing or a human thinking that you never get to be a human being. You know, wow. So I was either running around doing, 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 trying to tick off everything on the to-do list and then beating myself up if I didn't finish it all. Or I was so busy ruminating on things and thinking about them and then overthinking them and planning that I was never actually just being, experiencing life, being here, being present with myself and what was going on. And I think, you know, there's strengths to being in action mode and being a human doing. There's strengths to being a human thinking and planning. But if that's all we're doing, we're never really living. Mm, never in the moment. Mm. Think about how many amazing moments you miss when you're in those zones. Like, as I, and I think, you know what, let's talk, let's talk about the workplace because work in our careers, we run, and I run a careers podcast, lol, but careers can be, I think, a real source of lack of happiness, of stress, of I, like that external pressure to perform. I think that can be hugely impacting and, and detract from our sense of happiness. What do you see in the workplace? What are some of the red flags you see when it comes to happiness? Mm, so we talk a lot at BU about top-down and bottom-up solutions and top-down and bottom-up red flags. So top down is systemically and culturally, like what's the entire organization and workplace doing? Uh, and whereas bottom up is you can take responsibility for it as an individual and both are needed to create systemic change. I'll start with the top down ones. So if you're in a leadership or management role, that's where you see your career progressing. These are the ones that you're responsible for because you have a team of people who have entrusted you to lead them. And that comes with an ethical and moral responsibility, in my opinion, to contribute more to them than just a paycheck and working hours. So one of my big warning signs or red flags I see when we look top down is when organizations aren't measuring things like uh, things that were previously seen as intangible. So things like culture, happiness, well-being, engagement, burnout resilience, right? These things that for years we've known they're good, but for decades now people are like, oh, well, they're nice to have, they're fluffy, but when you turn into something that's measurable and trackable and you go, hang on, this actually has a direct impact on your bottom line. This has a direct impact on whether you're an employer of choice or not and how long people are going to stay working for you. This has a direct impact on productivity and performance. 
Right? We know for a fact there's a great book called The Happiness Advantage by Sean Aker, uh, who is a happiness researcher at Harvard. Like he's the one who pioneered a lot of this. He was saying, you know, we think that it was when I'm successful, then I'll be happy. Or when I achieve X, then I'll be happy. But what we're finding is it's the exact opposite. When I'm happy, I'm more likely to perform well. Therefore, I'm more likely to be noticed. Therefore, I'm more likely to get promotions and pay rises. Like it's a genuine advantage to start with happiness. Oh, right. That's such a different way to think though. And I think, well, that touches on like kind of the bottom up solution is like, it's up to you as an individual to take that approach. Like my big red flag for unhappiness at work is when someone's on the hedonic treadmill. Mm-hmm. If I talk to someone, and I go, hey, you're happy at work at the moment. And they're like, no, not at all. I'm like, okay, cool. Why not? And they're like, oh, but I will be happy once this happens. Mm-hmm. Once that colleague that I really don't like gets fired, everything will be so much better, <laughs> right? Or once I get a pay rise or once, you know, whatever it may be. And I'm like, oh, you're going to get there and you're going to be fleetingly happy for three months. Like that's the number they've tracked it now. If you get a pay rise, you'll be happier for about three months mm. and then nothing will change, right? <laughs> and so for, that's the first one bottom up as an individual. I'm like, if you're unhappy in your career, and you're gambling your happiness on the next change, bringing it to you automatically on a silver platter, it ain't going to work. The other thing is if you're under-responsible to your own happiness, which is your happiness is entirely determined by factors outside of your actual control. Oh, I love that. I've often thought, and I've been thinking about this since starting my business, actually, this idea of outsourcing my emotional health. Like, When you start to rely on external parties for your emotional stability rather than taking ownership over it and so there be my happiness is reliant on, oh, well, did you get likes on your social media post? Did you get that sale? Did you get that client review that was really positive? Like all these things that are, okay, they're in your control to influence but they're not totally in your control and we do that so much at work where we're outsourcing our happiness to other parties that really they're not responsible for that. Yeah. I mean, like it's blunt, but I'll say, you know, I said before, your brain doesn't care if you're happy. You need to train it to care that you're happy. The other blunt statement I'll say, if people want to take a snippet from this and go away with it, is your happiness is no one's responsibility but yours. Other people, yes, can contribute to it. External factors, yes, can contribute to it. But at a fundamental core, your happiness in life is your personal responsibility. Mm. (laughs) Just pause just to let that resonate. Declan, you know those home truths, like truth and love moments. I feel like this is one of those where it's like, I need to own my own happiness. I am Bowen, our previous co-host on the show, always talked about own your career and any of our long-time listeners will remember her saying that. I think what you're saying of own your happiness is your responsibility is so powerful because actually it's really, if we look at it in that positive way, it's really empowering. It's like, I'm in control of my own happiness yeah, there's factors outside of my control that, you know, I literally have no control over the economic climate that we're in. I have no control over whether my boss decides to make me redundant, all these factors, but I can control my response to it and how I move and navigate through that circumstance. Are there other things when you you talked about this top down, bottom up, are there other things bottom up that we can do, I guess, to influence our happiness at work? Yeah, I mean, it kind of ties in with what we can influence with our happiness itself, where I said, define what a happy life looks like to you. I'd argue it's the same for your career and with work. Mm-hmm. Define what a happy career looks like to you because I see a lot of people chasing other people's definition for a happy career. They're chasing their parents, their partners, 
their previous bosses, they're chasing societies. They're never actually stopping and going, wait, what, what role do I want my work to play in my life? What part does it actually play? And, and do I feel like I'm getting that? And then what matters to me in that part? Right? So if I go, okay, well, I want work to contribute to a sense of growth in my life. Okay, well, I'm going to be looking for something where there's a lot of growth opportunities. Because there might be other people who want none of that. And they go, you know what I really want? I want a sense of contribution. I want to feel like I'm making a difference. Okay, cool. Well, then look for workplaces that foster that. Until you start defining what a happy workplace means to you, you're going to keep, it's kind of like I say, trying to build a jigsaw puzzle without seeing the reference picture on the front. Mm -hmm. You could do it, but it's going to take you a lot of time. It's going to be a lot of stress and headaches. Whereas if you get a reference picture, you're like, this is what happiness means to me. This is specifically what happiness looks like in a workplace and a career. Okay, well, now you've got a blueprint that you can start building towards. And nobody can give you that answer except for you. Where would you start? So let's say our listeners right now today are going to go after this episode and they're going to do their happiness blueprint. And they're going to try and work out, okay, what is the happy career look like to me and what are I guess some of those values that inform your happiness like practically what could they do to kind of flesh that out love it I've got two really practical and tangible tools that anyone could do within the next half hour of finishing this podcast so one is a concept called ikigai which is a Japanese concept called my reason for being Uh, and it has these four circles that overlap each other it's what I can be paid well for what I'm good at what I enjoy doing, and what the world needs. And so you can start from those prompts. Get a piece of paper and pen and go, let's write down all the things that I'm good at or could become good at with practice. And on that, we have to, if we're doing that exercise, that Ikigai exercise, turn off the negative bias because I can think about so many people right now sitting down with that and it's such a beautiful framework and going, I don't know what I'm good at. But I think that's where our bias, our negative bias is coming. We need to shut that thing off. And if you struggle to get your negative bias out of the way, ask someone in your life. Sometimes other people see us in a more accurate light than we see ourselves. So ask someone that you trust. Be like, hey, what do you think I'm good at? What am I inherently good at? The other thing you can do, whilst I'm giving away really practical strategies to use, if you're not sure what you're good at, go do a test called the VIA Character Strengths Test. It's by uh, the Dr. Seligman and his team in positive psychology. Basically went, this is a list of 24 human strengths and, and virtues that people can be uniquely good at. And when you find your signature top five, those are the ones that they've found through positive psychology that if you practice them, if you utilize them at work, you're normally happier, more fulfilled, you perform better. So if you're like, I have no idea what I'm good at. I can't answer the first question in the four. Geez, what am I going to do? Go do that test first. It will spit out. And it's free to do. It'll spit out your top five character strengths. Start with those as, well, that's what I'm good at, right? Love it. And we'll put that in the, sh- in the show notes so Brilliant. people can, can jump in and do that. Fantastic. And then from there, obviously go around to the next one. Uh, what does the world need? Start looking at that. And if you need a framework for that, look up the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. They've literally written, this is what the world needs to do, 17 goals that we need to achieve as a species and society. So if you're like, I don't know what the world needs, go look at that. People have specialized in it. Again, don't reinvent the wheel. Right? And then if you come around to what do I love, I've got a practice for that, which was the second one I was going to recommend if you don't resonate with Ikigai. Uh, we do it at BU, we call it a traffic light analysis. So write down every single thing you currently do in your job, every little task. And then on a gut instinct whim, go through and color it green if it gives you energy. If you get lit up by it and you're like, yeah, I really look forward to it. Yellow is energy neutral. I don't look forward to it. It's kind of just part of the job, but I don't resent it either. Red is I lose energy to it. 
Redis, I procrastinate on this stuff. I avoid it. I hate it. What we know from research is that you need a three to one ratio of greens to reds to be happy at work. So if you're looking at your role going, there's a lot of red and not much green, that's a problem. But it's also going to help you, as I said, identify that third part of Ikigai of what do I enjoy? And then the last one is what can I be paid for? Look, I'd argue these days nearly anything. There's YouTubers reviewing kids' toys making $10 million a year. Like, <laughs> I think that's the last one to look at because too often people make choices based on money and they pursue money at the expense of their happiness. I'm like, realistically, these days, you could make money doing nearly anything. So let's do the other three first and finish on the pay one. It's funny you say that, Declan, because some of our most listened to episodes naturally are the pay episodes. Mm. And I think that goes to and speaks to us as people that there was that research from Princeton, I think it was, that was once it gets over seven, and this is, it's been about 10 years, so it would be a little bit higher inflation. with inflation, but it was at 70K. Once you get over 70K in your salary, it doesn't contribute to that feeling of happiness. I love the idea that even happiness is affected by inflation. That's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so look, we probably need to make more to be happy because cost of living has gone up. We're all feeling that at the moment. Everything is affected by inflation. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. That was the number they found. It was about 70 grand a year or about 100 to 110 for a couple if it's dual income household. Um, <laughs> I'm still laughing about happiness being affected by inflation. Yeah, it's brilliant. But yeah, you're right. It's like, I don't know, a lot of people make that mistake of going, again, it's the heroic treadmill, I'll be happy when I make more money. Now that's true if you're under financial stress and pressure. I don't want to, I think when we say, I remember someone once said to me, and it changed my mind on this entirely. They said, saying that money doesn't buy happiness is such a privileged statement mm. because it means you're not stressed about having a roof over your head and food on the table. Yeah. Right, so let's be real with each other. Let's cut the crap, right? And go, hey, money has an impact on happiness up until a point, but that point's normally a lot lower than what people think. When you ask people what's that point, the most common answer is a six-figure salary. Yeah. They think it's 100 grand a year. I'm like, it's comfortably less. <laughs> wow. And you're right, it is a privileged spot to be in. This is a good challenge, right? Because our most listened to episodes have been on pay. I think this is one of the most important episodes we've ever done on this podcast. And your insight, Declan, is amazing. And I honestly, I'm like looking at the time thinking, oh, we need to do a part two. So let's lock that in. Okay. What I'm going to ask our listeners, this is, I think, seriously, one of the most profound episodes for our careers and our work and just life in general, right? I want you to share this episode with a bunch of people, share it with your team, share it with your boss. Talk to them about this idea of happiness and that we can cultivate happiness in our workplace top down. So our leaders have a responsibility, but we have a responsibility. So share it, get it out there. I'd love to share some of you. You have so many great resources at BU Happiness College. I heard you talk about this idea of a happiness scorecard. Is this something that people can access? Yeah, 100%. So it's something we rolled out a couple of years ago. Again, for us, we went, what's the biggest gap for a lot of people learning to manage their mind and emotions more effectively and live happier? And it's that they were flying blind. They didn't know where their happiness was until it started to hurt. And so they went, okay, well, I'm clearly unhappy. And by then, you're too far down the, down the road. Uh, and so what we developed, we went, well, imagine if we could build just a free test, seven minutes long, a check-in where people could do it, and it would spit them out a personalized report that goes, hey, this is your happiness score based on hedonic happiness versus eudaimonic happiness. This is your happiness contributors and your top three that you're doing really, really well, so please keep doing them, and the three that you probably need to focus most on growing. And it gave them a way to actually tangibly measure and understand because we're big believers in the saying, what you measure, you can manage. And we went, okay, let's design it, let's build it. We did it over two years. 
And then we did something that a lot of people have told us we're silly for and is pretty radical, but I said, hey, I want to give it out for free. So we do 250 a month for free. So the first 250 people of each month that download it, get it for free. And then we went even the next step and said, our vision at BU is to grow global happiness. Let's make this more than the individual. And so for every single one that's utilized, we actually provide a day of food to someone in need uh, through our charity partner at B1G1, which stands for buy one, give one. So it's our way of contributing back to those United Nations global goals we spoke of earlier. So yeah, if they go to happinessscorecard.com.au or if they go to BU Happiness College and go to the scorecard, first 250 people every month, it's free. It's there. You can use it as many times as you want. Oh, that's so good. I know there'll be 250 gone as soon as this one uh, gets released. Okay, so we'll have all this in the show notes for everyone listening. And I just want to touch on, we didn't get to it because of time, so we'll have to jump on this for a part two. What about for workplaces? What do you guys do at BU Happiness College? Because I know there'll be leaders listening who want to be able to do this in their own teams and in their workplace. Yeah, so I mean, the big one that we do over the last couple of years uh, is we extended on the idea of what you can measure, you can manage. And that big red flag of workplaces not having clarity and trackability on things like culture, burnout, well-being, engagement. And we, well, we've got all the research there. We know how to track and quantify these things. Why don't we build what we affectionately called the heart foundation tick, but for good workplaces instead of good food? Nice. Anyway, let's start <laughs> recognizing and elevating and celebrating organizations that are doing great things for their team and are creating happy work environments. And so we created the Happy Workplace Accreditation, where we go in and we test and measure and assess five different contributors to workplace happiness. We then develop a whole report for that organization to go, this is what you're doing well, this is where your gaps are. And if you hit benchmarks, we give you an accreditation that you can use for 12 months to stand out as an employer of choice and go, hey, we've been independently assessed and accredited to be a happy workplace. So your ability to attract and retain great talent from that, to add that to your employee value proposition, and to also, I just think ethically know that you're doing good things for your team that's what I'm excited about. I'm excited to see more and more organizations using that so we can, as I said, recognize and elevate and celebrate great workplaces. Declan, thank you so much for your time. Seriously, I have some work to do and I'm going to jump on. I'm going to be one of the, I'm going to take one of those 250 Brilliant. assessments. And thank you. I just really appreciate your time. Where can people find you if they want to connect? Uh, so best way is go to the website, beyouhappinesscollege.com or if you go to Instagram, beyouhappinesscollege uh, or you can also go to my LinkedIn, uh, Declan Edwards and then follow all our content from there. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for hanging out. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. We love learning how to do all things well, which is why we have a bunch of different podcasts on a variety of topics. So go and check out My Millennial Investor, My Millennial Money Professional, My Millennial Property, My Millennial Money, and our Spotify exclusive show, My Millennial Daily. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping 
and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.